In this special episode, I'm joined by two anthropologists to talk about nuclear waste and what implications it has for local communities, as well as what connections the process of glassmaking, also known as vitrification, might have with society. So Penny, please introduce yourself. I'm Penny Harvey. I'm Professor of Social Anthropology at the University of Manchester. I also set up a research group called The Beam. Several of us, including Petra, have been working on the social understanding of nuclear power. I am also Deputy Chair of Quorum, which is the Committee on Radioactive Waste Management, an independent advisory body that offers scrutiny and yeah, independent advice to government about nuclear waste management. And Petra, your background is a little bit different. My name is Petra Czitska Karlshoven, and I'm a social anthropologist at the University of Manchester. And over the past five years, I've done research in West Cumbria on the nuclear industry and how it's um, entangled with the region. Nuclear waste is often seen as quite a dangerous thing, but it's not an easy thing to define. There are lots of different types of waste. Vitrification is one way of immobilising a liquid waste into a solid form that is suitable for disposal, is the official term. And the idea behind the disposal concept is that it will be buried deep underground, surrounded by all these seals that will be far away from people. The radioactivity will naturally decay away over a very long time frame. And in theory, it shouldn't pose a hazard to people on the surface of the Earth. Could you tell me more about what the disposal of nuclear waste means for society? Yes, well, well, what I would be interested in thinking about as well is what what it does to the environment. Because as you say, yes, everything is focused on trying to get nuclear waste away from from people. But it's also interesting, I think, to, to think about what it means if you put this very vibrant stuff into the earth and also what that does to human imagination about what happens to the planet. But if you think about planning for a disposal of, of nuclear waste, it's very difficult, of course, to uh, to involve the environment in that discussion because we're always talking with people about this. We're trying to bring in intergenerational ethics, uh, for example, people in later generations and how they would have to live with, uh, with a disposal site. But how do you get the environment into it? That's one of the questions I have. We do have 70 years worth of waste in the UK and it's costing well over three and a half billion pounds a year to maintain safely at the moment. So we do need some kind of, even if we were never to generate another inch of it, we do need to find some way to keep it safe. Quorum, this committee on which I work back in 2006, actually made the recommendation that it should be buried deep underground. And that was the safest option given our current knowledge. They did the wonderful research into should it go into space or be sunk into the deep ocean or, you know, what, are, what were the other options? And one other option that has been chosen in, in other places, notably Scotland, is it should be just kept on the surface. I think that's also an option that's been taken up in other countries, maybe keep it on the surface for 100 years. But of course, that in itself does imply a lot of extra costs. So that in Britain, the, the decision was taken, well, let's just try, let's just try and deal with it once and for all, work out where it is. And once we've worked out what we've got and how we can contain it, what kind of packaging and the vitrification process is very much part of that, then that would be the optimal solution. So that's why that decision was taken. 
I did want to also mention this statement that was made in the Flowers Report. Sir Brian Flowers headed up a royal commission about nuclear contamination in the 1970s. And he made this very important statement in that report that was published in 76. And he said there should be no commitment to a large program of nuclear fission power until it has been demonstrated beyond reasonable doubt that a method exists to ensure the safe containment of long-lived, highly radioactive waste for the indefinite future. So this statement has been very important in guiding the GDF. Those who are closely involved and who are very supportive of the GDF do believe that beyond reasonable doubt they have a method. But that isn't the same as saying that they know exactly how everything is going to go, because we're talking 150 years before this program is going to be finished. If you think back 150 years, we didn't even have computers. But other people say that, in fact, we haven't got to that stage of being beyond reasonable doubt that the method exists. And they feel very concerned that if we're going to start generating new nuclear waste, um, then this is really going against the recommendation that Flowers made in the 1970s. There are kind of two issues here about what we absolutely have to do with what we've already got, and then whether we should be generating more nuclear waste before we've really got underway with dealing with what we've already got. So I think those two questions do need to be thought about together, but they're not the same. They're not the same issue. No, and I think the key thing you were saying is the very long timescales involved. It's 150 years until the GDF, the Geological Disposal Facility, will be sealed off. Yeah, well, the current expectation is that we're in very early days. The developer is still looking for a site and the site has to involve a suitable geology and a willing community. And neither of those things have been settled upon yet. Even once they find a site and get started, it's going to be at least about 50 or 60 years before it's actually going to start being operational. And then it'll be like another 100 years or so after that until it would be closed. And each stage got to go through huge loads of regulatory scrutiny. So it's a long, long process. So the knowledge that's going to be gleaned along the way and comparative knowledge from other parts of the world, because there are several other GDFs being built in other places, notably in, in Scandinavia, in Canada, in Netherlands, France, Belgium. So there's a lot that people are going to be learning from each other. What I find interesting to think about also as an anthropologist is there's all these practical issues uh, around potential GDF, around what hazardous waste could do or how we can deal with it. But there's also the imaginary of people around it that I find interesting. I remember going to an early information session and back then the national parks were not excluded yet from the exploratory uh, venture to look for a place to site in GDF. And someone was saying, well, should it be buried close to a national park or even under the national park here in here in Cumbria? It would taint our imagination of the national park. And I thought that that was a really interesting thing to pay attention to as well, that it's not only about the hazards that are there, but it's also about associations that come up with waste and perhaps nuclear waste in particular that we should pay attention to. There just seem to be a lot of different ideas about what waste is and what that means to the environment. Penny, you mentioned in particular there currently isn't a site for the disposal facility. So what are some of the challenges involved in siting and transporting the waste? The main problem is that people are afraid of it. I mean, I think there is this sense that nuclear has this association very deeply embedded with total destruction and annihilation. It's this, you know, we first knew about nuclear through the dropping of bombs in the Second World War, and then we've had some major 
international accidents, which have always caused more alarm than any other kind of accident, whether or not they've killed more people. It feels as it's a kind of material that is just apocalyptic in the public imagination. And that's been kind of amplified by the excitement that can generate for all kinds of dramas, you know, film dramas and novels. It's, it's the kind of ultimate destructive force. The industry itself hasn't really helped because it also has been, it's very state controlled. It's very secretive. After many kind of different incidents, it's actually gone quite a long way to shut public out from understanding what actually goes on. And straightforward lying at, at times, you know, saying there's absolutely nothing happened when things have happened. And people know that. So there's also a, a lack of trust. To come in from a slightly different angle, perhaps, I think indifference might also be a challenge because, yeah, as Penny says, um, um, people um, tend to become very excited in different ways about uh, the nuclear and nuclear waste. But I think there's also a lot of um, in, indifference around or people that are not at all aware that this um, big infrastructure project might might be happening at one point. So I, I would be hoping that because there's um, a long time involved in in getting this going, I, I would like to think that rather than a challenge, it could also be an opportunity to think about futures more deeply. It's an opportunity for people to um, to think about what they really want for their futures in energy terms, um, in 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 waste terms, in societal and environmental terms. So uh, so I would be um, I would hope really that that uh, rather than only a, a challenge, it could also be an opportunity really to open up thinking about futures, which is a very diff difficult thing to do, really. People uh, find it um, hard to think about uh, the future just further than the, the next generation. And here we're talking about a, a long, long project with with um, with um, extremely long uh, repercussions on geologic time skills. I'm also like Petra, an anthropologist of materials. I'm very interested in industrial waste more generally. And in fact, nuclear waste, they're not the most enduring. They're not necessarily the most toxic, which doesn't mean to say they are enduring and they are toxic. But there's lots of other things that people don't feel that level of panic about. But I think there's something about nuclear, which is people feel that it's absolutely out of their control, that there's, you know, it's going to be something that they're not going to be able to themselves manage. And it has this capacity to destroy. And the industry kind of also makes it worse because not only is it secretive, but it's absolutely safety obsessed, which is fine. And you should think it should be. But it means that something that isn't even really particularly dangerous gets treated as if it's like the most dangerous thing in the world. So you teach people that how dangerous it is. And the cynical, you know, cynical arguments that sometimes that's been done to ensure that humongous amounts of money keep getting poured into the industry in order to keep it all safe. I think someone referred to it once to me as a, you know, Sellafield is a five star hotel for these nuclear wastes. And it comes out of a history of Cold War paranoia. And that's where a lot of these ideas started from and how when that got turned into a source of civil energy, it carried all that resonance with it. So it is bound to those kinds of issues, which I think make it very emotional. But other people find it very exciting because it's very technologized. It's very super interesting. It is a kind of viable energy source in one way. It is offering an answer to fossil fuel, but is it an answer that brings a bigger problem with it? Or is it an answer that makes it less problematic? 
in ways we're all kind of complicit as we use energy and expect we can turn the light on and we can expect that everything use more and more energy as we as we go forward and this idea of total progress never step back never do without anything that's you know nuclear is bound into all those stories as well an awful lot of really interesting stuff to let people go away and think about there so i'm kind of summarizing that is nuclear industry has quite a long history already that's sometimes been shrouded in secrecy and potential nefarious applications now there's an opportunity to look to the future and say well what does this mean for every single person in the nation that's benefited from that nuclear power and then need to think about what happens in their future. There's been several attempts to try and cite a GDF and they failed for different reasons, but mainly each time they were basically trying to impose it on a community. In the last time, technically they weren't. Technically it was a voluntaristic process, but people didn't feel that they really did have a voice. They felt that they were being told what to do. I was thinking about what Petra was saying about environment. The National Park played a huge role in the failure of the previous citing process because people were concerned and could imagine the total destruction of an environment that they really cared about. So that this idea about environmental futures is actually at the core of a lot of people's protests about having the nuclear facility near them. There's a fear about the radiation, but I think environment comes up more strongly as people are thinking about futures. In a way, there's an irony there, because of course, again, as you talk about the timescales, there was no such thing as a national park, even just over 100 years ago. It's a kind of human concept and a human imaginary of something which is real nature that's away from things. It's very, very recent and a very kind of specific little idea of our time. We're thinking of hundreds of thousands of years, you know, we don't even know what environment could possibly mean. There's a sense in which the connection of everything between the water tables, the rocks, the air, the soils, this idea that this material is going to affect them, people do really worry about that. Of course, the barrier method is all about precluding that so that the vitrification is quite an important element in this story. The key thing of this latest project is that the, this idea of a willing community, if it works, it's precisely supposed to be the kind of catalyst that Petra's talking about to say there's all kind of ways in which this facility could become part of the future of a place. It could be a very negative future or it could be something that's very imaginative and that you're thinking about differently. It's really about whether any particular community is going to have the capacity and the strength in a way to really imagine something and demand how this facility could make where we live a better place to be. And it will be a compromise. It could be something that could be very transformational, but it is going to require a lot of engagement. And, yeah, and if people are going to not engage, it's going to be very difficult and it'll start feeling like it's being imposed. If there's a way that the um, developer can really have the energy to draw people in and try and get a discussion going without telling them what the answer is, that could be very exciting. It could be very creative. So I think I agree there's really is massive opportunities, but obviously there's also lots of local concerns and people not surprisingly think about the immediate future. So it isn't really a national conversation at all as yet. It's a very local conversation and a very important one. The exhibition that was kind of the catalyst for this conversation is being held in Copeland, which is one community that formed a partnership. But what does that mean? In the policy for the geological disposal facility, as I said, they need to find a willing community and the mechanism to do that. It starts with, could just be a single person who's got some kind of interest. And then if they can find other people, particularly including at least one member of a local council, 
then they were able to form a working group. And then once the working group starts talking to more people, if there seems to be a genuine possibility that there could be a willing community forming over time and that there could be a suitable geology, so all this in conversation with the developer, then they can form a partnership. The purpose of the partnership is to really try to find ways to engage people who live in the ward who will then ultimately, after several years, have the right to vote in a test of public support whether they would be willing or not. So this idea of the willingness is absolutely the core of it. There's currently four partnerships in the UK and within about three years they're going to make that down to two partnerships. So at the minute they're just trying to really gauge initial interest Copeland is an interesting one because a lot of people in Copeland work in Sellafield or have family members and so they're very familiar with nuclear materials and nuclear power and there's very strong levels of support at the moment um, within Copeland. However, there's also a history where in the previous siting process there was a concern about whether the geology was suitable. And so currently there's a lot of enthusiasm for thinking about the possibility of building a GDF under the seabed rather than doing it on land. They call it an inshore facility. So that's currently what's being explored to see whether the geology inshore could be suitable. The partnerships really does have this obligation to try to engage as many people as possible. So they do exhibitions, they're doing lots of different activities to try and have those conversations. So that the key thing at the moment is to have the conversations, is to try and get people to think about it and to openly discuss things that they might want for their community, things that they don't want, imagining how you would draw in young people, how you'd think about the environment, all those are, are the issues that are being discussed. So it's very much about having conversations around what the opportunities could be and the thing that keeps coming up is what that means for the environment as well yeah i think there are any particular questions that this community might have given pre-existing relationship with the nuclear industry and how that might differ from some of the other communities i think they have a, a much stronger starting point they understand in general what nuclear power is and what the waste involves because they've been living in with it. All the high level waste is currently in Sellafield um, in Britain. So the one community in Britain that actually has experience of living with nuclear waste is Copeland. Other communities who are, who are considering, who are forming partnerships have never had anything to do with nuclear and don't have any experience of what it might mean. So they're using their imaginations more than their experience. There's also, of course, the, the interesting matter of transport, if the decision would be for a site elsewhere. The general concerns about transport on the whole in the conversations I've been party to is much more about cost than it is about safety. Often people don't realise how much nuclear materials are moved around the UK on a routine basis at the moment. But the cost, they'd have to be building new railways and possibly new ports if they were going to transfer it any distance out of West Cumbria that would be a huge investment but it would be possible. And ports when you when you talk about transport also for other matters ports would be very interesting I think to to think about generally in in future making because we we don't use the sea much here which is a shame. Which we're an island so that's a bit of a waste. (laughs) So even if they were transporting the waste from Sellafield to a different community, that would still have benefits for the community around Sellafield if it improves transport links, which to my mind, as someone that lives here, could do with some investment. The community around Sellafield will be involved in this process for at least another 150 years, whatever happens, because they have the waste. If it's going to stay here or if it's going to be moved somewhere else, yes, it will definitely involve the Sellafield region. But of course, people will mention blight also in the short term, because you you mentioned benefits, Laura, but during the process of all the building, construction, transport, ways, of course, there will be lots of upheaval too. So that's often mentioned also as a, uh, as a negative issue. 
it will be a huge construction project but unlike any other huge construction project this one will have the community at its heart and they can set terms and conditions in ways that have not usually been possible if they choose to if they really go for it if they choose to and if you get everyone on board as i said before indifference is a really difficult to deal with if people are indifferent they've only got themselves to blame when it happens so you need to get people on board definitely completely completely important yeah the exhibition concentrates on vitrified waste the stuff that's been turned into glass that's the really radioactive stuff the reason for vitrifying it is because it is fairly radiation tolerant compared to other things you could do to it and it's classed as high level waste because the amount of radioactivity it gives off means it gets hot. So should this particular material have any more special considerations with society? Well, one thing that, that I was really um, quite excited about is, is when I read a bit about possibilities of capturing heat from high-level nuclear waste. In fact, a few years ago, a prospectus for Cumbria mentioned that at NNL, uh, the National Nuclear Laboratory, there had been a research into trying to capture, I think it was a byproduct of, of plutonium, and they managed to make a light bulb <laughs> glow with, with that. And of course, it's a very small scale example, but uh, the, the heat in nuclear waste is something that might give an opportunity to, to do something about our, our energy issues and energy transition over time. Otherwise, there's this high-level activity waste. There's been some interesting social science research about the vibrancy of waste and how that's interesting from a point of view of materiality, which is the relationships that people have with materials. What, what we want to do, of course, is tame this vibrancy of nuclear waste because it is hazardous. But it's also interesting to think of ways to live with wastes like that. There's always the risk of hubris that we think, well, it's all engineerable. We, we can do something about it. And I'm reminded of something that the former CEO of Sellafield said at one point, uh, Paul Foster. He was talking about Sellafield having to keep the genie in the bottle. And I find that interesting because, of course, vitrification is about glass and incorporating waste into glass. And you want to keep that genie indeed in that bottle. I see vitrified waste as perhaps an ode to human hubris, thinking that it's engineerable, but also a warning against human hubris, thinking that you can actually capture it for many years to come. And the exhibition uh, shows that research is ongoing into vitrification, that there might be crystal forming in vitrification, and you want to know all about that, because of course you want the glass to remain durable and not become brittle over time. You want to engineer it in such a way that it is safe over time. And that's an ongoing process of, of research. When I first learned about the vitrification, I was really fascinated to read about how it's a process. I mean, I think a lot of people maybe think that it's about kind of being contained in glass while instead of actually becoming glass and in this kind of whole change in the molecular structure. A lot of the ways in which the GDF is really thought about, one of the reasons it's put deep underground is actually, it is a kind of capture, I do agree with that word, but it's also about slowing it down. It's about materials that move really, really fast. And if you can re-engineer them such that they become part of an environment that moves incredibly slowly, and that's where the rock becomes really interesting, because rock moves, rock moves all the time. But, you know, 100,000 years, which would be really, really significant up on the surface, is just like a millisecond in the geological time frame. 
I'm really interested in how this idea of the very fast moving fissile matter into a time frame where the movement is made completely other. I don't think anyone really thinks that the glass is going to contain it forever, but it was going to change the rhythm of the movement in relation to what else gets engineered around it. So the engineering, in, in a way, is this fabulous series of slow-moving barriers. And I think the glass is seen as being more effective than concrete. There's a wonderful phrase that someone told me about at Sellafield, you know, if in doubt, grout. The idea, the quick and easy method is to kind of shove some concrete onto things. Um, but of course, that makes everything very bulky. And it also hasn't got this same um, it does have a slowing down capacity massively, but not the same as the as the vitrification, which is really changing the molecular structure of the waste itself. And I find that very fascinating. I really like that. So we talked about the idea that we're finding ways to sort of slow down what could be a fast process. Glass is quite good for doing that. It can be radiation tolerant. It can be quite durable, which means it doesn't immediately fall apart or dissolve into water. Humans have been making glass for thousands of years. It comes up in art and it's got practical uses. So it seems that society has a long relationship with glass. You think back, uh, for example, to the, the Roman period, we still have glasses from that period of time. And, and even long before that, glass was being produced by humans for uh, all kinds of different uses and also for, uh, for its aesthetics. I was reading this piece by uh, Rosemary Trentinella, who works for the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And she she talks about how suddenly glass making flourished in Rome in the second century AD and how that made glass makers and glass artisans flock to what was, of course, a very powerful economic, a powerful military center. So you get these communities of artisans getting together there and glass becoming widely used in Roman society. Recently, I've been very interested to hear various friends say that they are no longer using the cut crystal that they've inherited from their grandparents. And because in fact, the ways in which glass has been made traditionally has got quite a lot of lead in it or other kinds of materials that make it not very advisable to drink out of <laughs> over an extended period of time. So I quite enjoy the history of the aesthetic of glass as something which is so beautiful and highly valued and yet can also hold this toxicity invisibly because it kind of appears to be this lovely, transparent, beautiful thing. So I think that's quite a kind of fun analogy when we're thinking nuclear waste, the beauty and the hidden hazards. Yeah, and there's also these other uses of, of glass in the nuclear. I'm thinking of leaded glass, which is used to enable people to look at contaminated materials whilst it apparently protects their eyes. So glass is really interesting to think within in so many different ways. And also when you think of the transparency or the translucency, I, I find it interesting. Penny mentioned uh, earlier on that the nuclear industry has struggled with being transparent parent. That's an interesting one to think with too. You hear people saying now that glass packaging, so glass milk bottles and the like, are more sustainable than materials we've been using quite a lot, like plastics. So there's this idea that glass is more sustainable than I guess more modern forms. I understand that glass making as such uh, leaves a, a long environmental trace as well. And of course requires great heat, so it's a great consumer of energy. Yeah, It's interesting to see how these things come up, because plastic is generally seen as a bad thing because of plastic pollution. But there's a more nuanced conversation to have around that. It's fascinating how 
we think of the durability of plastics as a huge problem, whilst we're talking here about the durability of glass as something that's interesting. You can go to a museum and see glass from that Roman or even from the Egyptian uh, period. So, so we we tend to associate that with with very different things. And of course, now in vitrification, it's seen as an asset uh, to slow down uh, and to incorporate uh, those radionuclides. Thank you.